Well, this week we're uh, we're jumping back into our series, Raising Dry Bones. And today we're looking at riding the ship. We'll continue looking at that. Uh, last time, if you remember a couple of weeks back, Buffy started by taking us through a uh, biblical picture of headship and, uh, and leadership. And so hopefully after that message, uh, we all know who's in charge and who we're following. And if not, if you would take the time this week to go back and uh, listen to Buffy's message again, if you didn't get that, if you weren't here a couple of weeks back, or if, uh, if it just still doesn't resonate with you, uh, if, 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 because if we get that part wrong, headship and leadership, then the rest of this is just noise. Uh, because we have to understand that Christ is the head of his church. We have to understand that he's in charge. He's appointed elders to lead the flock here at Crossway. And if we can't agree, uh, agree on that, then the rest of this is just noise. So, again, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago or you just don't understand it yet, go back and listen to, uh, to Buffy's message. Today we're going to build on it, though. We're going to build upon what he started. We'll go from headship and leadership. Now we're going to be discussing the importance of membership and partnership in Christ's church. So as we start, I, w- I want us to think about four people, four people and their attitudes toward the church. First, we've got Mike. Now, Mike uh, follows Jesus but he doesn't follow him into organized religion. Mike feels like he worships best by going fishing every Sunday. <coughs> then we've got Leanne. Leanne is a, uh, a church hopper, right? She, uh, she's always somewhere, right? She's, she's always, but it's never the same church every week. She'll go from this place to this place to this place. She's always somewhere every Sunday, but never the same place. Then you've got Jessica. Jessica found a small group for singles that meet uh, on Sunday nights, and she's there every single Sunday night. She doesn't miss it. And she might show up on church on Sunday morning if the message sounds interesting, but she's at that small group every Sunday night. And then you've got Jack. Jack loves the preaching at his church, but he'll tend to slip out the door at the very end. He never really thought about joining the church either. What's the point? What's the point in joining the church? So what do all these people have in common? All these people have in common, they see themselves as Christians, they would consider themselves to be believers, but they see the church is pretty unrelated to their faith. And they share the fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. If you don't consider the church to be a fundamental part of your faith, then you have a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. So we're going to start by talking about membership. Why join a church? Right. That's our first point. Membership. Why join a church? Go ahead and be turning to Ephesians. We're going to take a little tour, little tour through Ephesians this morning to answer that question. Why join a church? Turn to Ephesians 2. Uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians is a, is a very, Paul gives us a beautiful description of salvation. Tells us how we're saved for our for our sin, how we're saved from our sins, and it's to the praise and glory of, of Jesus. But uh, chapter two, verse four says, "But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in tr- our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ." That's Ephesians two, chapter four, and that's the theology. But uh, here's the application. The first implication of the gospel we come to is that is this the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles that was that's gone that was destroyed. The dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. You know they hated each other. The Jews and the Gentiles absolutely hated each other. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They thought they were dirty people. They called them dogs. But this unity, this this dividing wall that, that separated them, got destroyed. And this in this unity, 
was so intense that Paul called it a mystery in Ephesians 3, 3. He says it was hidden for generations, but now made known. And then verse 6 in chapter 3, he also said the mystery that is through the gospel, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members together of one body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So why did God do it? Why did he why did he uh, why did he destroy this this wall of hostility? Why did he unify these two, these these redeemed Jews and redeemed the redeemed Gentiles? They have absolutely nothing in common. Zero. Why did he divide or destroy that wall that divided them and bring unity between them? Well, if you jump ahead to verse 10 in chapter three, he created unity between two groups of people who have nothing in common. It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So do you see it? Through the church. God intends to do these things through the church. And I know it seems like an odd place to institute the most institutional aspect of Christianity, but God's plan to glorify himself centers on the local church. The, the, the church isn't essentially about instruction or about singing songs. It's about a community of people who are different from each other in the world's eyes. Just like the Jews and the Gentiles, absolutely opposites of each other. Nothing in common but Christ. The, the church is a community of people who are different from each other in the world's eyes, but yet who live together in unity and love because they share Christ in common. And instruction, the instruction that we get fuels this community, right? It fuels it. And the praise that we have, the worship that we have is our response. But at its core, the church is community. It's community for the praise and the glory of God. Think about what Jesus said in John 13, 34. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So love between Christians, it's not just this extra credit part of Christianity. It's essential, right? Because church, what we do here at Crossway, it's messy. Church can be messy. It hurts. It's not easy to love people who are different from you. It's, it's, it's one of the hardest things to do. But that's the whole point. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Right? Even non-believers, even, even uh, pagans love those who don't love or, or even pa pagans love those who love them. How did he say it? Pagans love those who love them back. Right. So it's easy to love somebody who loves you back. So that's why I attended church. But not investing in these messy, God glorifying relationships, that's not living up to God's plan for the church. So even coming to church. It, it, it's not the whole that's not the whole plan. Right. It's investing something. It's one thing to live a holy life, but if you're living that holy life in isolation from everyone else, then the world's not going to be intrigued by what it is that we're doing here at Crossway. So what's different is Christians who love each other, who are committed to each other, who have difficult, difficult conversations with each other, and they share in each other's joys and each other's burdens. That's church, right? That's church that God intended. And that's why if you consider yourself a Christian, then you not only have to be a member of a local church, but you have to be a meaningful member of a local church. So what does that look like? What exactly is that? Does that look like? Well, we're going to go through a few things here and uh, Buffy's talked about these before, but these are the one another commands in scripture. And hopefully as we go through these, you'll see, uh, you'll start to see a 
picture of true biblical membership. So here's the first one. It's love one another. Love one another. First Peter 2.17 says, love the brotherhood of believers. Or Galatians 6.10 says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And look, this love's not just a, it's not just a fuzzy feeling. It's not just a warm feeling. It's a love with staying power. It's a love that lasts, right? Romans 15, one says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Or earlier in Romans chapter 12, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Two verses later in Romans 12, Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. It's just like a marriage. It's just like a marriage. Our commitment to the bride of Christ isn't a real commitment if we get up and walk away the first time sacrifice becomes real. If we get up and walk away the first time it gets hard, then we don't have a real commitment to the body of Christ. Love in a church doesn't say a whole lot about uh, uh, that kind of love. doesn't say a whole lot about the power of the gospel. If we don't have commitment or if we don't have staying power. And what I think is uh, it's. uh, It's um, there. There are dozens of passages like this, like I just read. And what I think is 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 extremely important for us to understand is that these all of these scriptures that I just read and and, and even the other ones that I didn't read, but they're, they're all given. They're given to all Christians, all believers, all Christians. It's not just for an elite few Christians. It's not for just a a few powerful Christians who are in leadership positions. This is given to all Christians. So this, the kind of deep committed love for other Christians is not something that we just grow into over time. It's not something that we eventually get to once we've been a Christian for a while or mature in our, in our growth. It's expected of all Christians. It's expected of all believers from the very moment you believe. And it's something that you can only do when you rub shoulders with each other on a regular basis. That's the only way it's going to happen. So if you're a Christian, you need to put yourself in a place where this kind of love and where you can love in this kind of way and where you can give others the opportunity to love you back just like this. So love one another, love one another. Here's the second one. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians five. He tells them to encourage one another and build each other up. In Hebrews 10, 24, the writer says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So it's good to be an encouraging person. It really is. But but general encouragements, not what these two authors are talking about. The writer of Hebrews says in the very next verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 25, he tells us clearly what he's talking about. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So obedience to this command to encourage each other is to be done specifically with other people right here in Crossway. We're to encourage each other every time we are together. Even when you're not together and you think about someone, we have cell phones. Text each other. Encourage each other. Have you ever 
thought about your encouragement of others right here in Crossway as part of God's big plan? We don't think about God's plan in that way, but maybe God's plan is not all about our individual selves. When we think about God's big plan, it may not just be all about us. Maybe God's about, maybe it's about something bigger than that. See, maybe even more than he cares about you, maybe he cares about your giving yourself to build up the local church and to build up the members of the local church. Maybe by you pouring your life into other people in a committed way, those who are maybe a little bit weaker than you in the faith, maybe they'll be strengthened by that. And through that, God's glorified. Maybe that's part of God's big plan. All right, so love one another. Encourage one another. Also, here's the third one. Guard one another. Guard one another. Hebrews 12 the author writes Christians writes to Christians about their responsibility for each other. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. And there's that famous text in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes to the Corinthians church, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if I and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I bet that man thought himself was a thought as himself as a Christian. I bet the guy went to church regularly. I, I bet he did all the things Christian people do in that community. And that's exactly why Paul wrote here and had to take the action that he took. Somehow they had to make it clear to this guy for his sake that he was living a lie. He was a non-believer. See, that's, that, was, that, that would be the loving thing to do, right? Church discipline is, is it's hard, but out of love, it's the loving thing to do. Not only for this man here in 1 Corinthians 5, but for the others around him. Because it makes the gospel clear to unbelievers. Unbelievers inside the church, for one, they can say, well, you know, I'm calling myself a Christian, but I guess maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all because I'm not living like one. When you see discipline take place in the church in a biblical way, it makes, it, it makes, it makes the gospel clear. And it makes it clear not only to the believers in the church, but believers outside the church, too. If we were to hold each other accountable the way that we're supposed to hold each other accountable, they see this is what Christians are supposed to be like. This is what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And like I said before, these commands aren't just for super Christians. They're not for some elite group of Christians. They're for the, all Christians are, are to have this kind of relationship inside the local church. As, as, uh, as fallen people, we are... We're susceptible to self-deception. We're prone to self-deception. And the main thing God set up for us to deal with self-deception, what do you think it is? The local church. That's what God set up for us to deal with this self-deception. It's, it's being in a community where people, we, we get to know people. We, get to, we allow them to get to know us. And, and they see, and, and that's how whether... Um, 
That's how we see whether we're living out this Christianity that we profess, that whether we're living it out according to Scripture. Right? So it's, it's about a community of people getting to know each other. And allowing, you know, we get to know, we, we, I get to know Marty, Marty gets to know me. And then we hold each other accountable to the Word of God. So we love one another, encourage one another, guard one another. And here's the fourth one, obey your leaders. Obey your leaders. And I know Buffy talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for, what, uh, for that would be of no advantage to you. So this verse has implications for both church members and church leaders. For both members and leaders. For church members, let me ask you the question. For church members, are you to obey every church leader that comes through here? No. You're not to obey every church leader who comes along. You're to obey the leaders of your own church. The ones that you have signed up to submit to. And for church leaders, are we going to give an account for every Christian alive? No. We're not going to give an account for every Christian, but we will give an account for the Christians in this body of believers here at Crossway. That's that's what that uh, right here, this flock, this we won't we'll give an account for this particular flock here at Crossway. So how would this work? How, how would all of this work if 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 everybody was just a church consumer hopping around from church to church? Would this work very well? No. Which leaders are they supposed to obey? Right. If I'm at this church this week and then I go over to the Methodist church next week and I, then I go to a Presbyterian church the next week and then the Assembly of God the next week and then I start all over again next month. Which of those leaders am I supposed to obey? Which one is keeping a watch over my soul? That's not how this is supposed to work. One of the biggest things we have to deal with in this whole re revitalization process is commitment. We, from my perspective, we have an issue with knowing exactly who's committed themselves to this church. That's the truth. So as elders, Buffy, myself, Coach, and Marty, we have to know who's committed so then we know who we're keeping watch over. And then you know who's keeping watch over your soul, who's praying for you. The only reason why churches exist is because people realize, okay, no church is perfect, but but I'm going to settle right here in this place and I'm going to I'm going to try to prosper here spiritually. I agree with what they teach. I agree uh, in, in how they're trying to live together. So I'm going to I'm going to live right here with them and I'm going to be committed to them. That's why churches exist. That's the kind of a, a commitment that allows us to live uh, live out Hebrews 13, 17. So we've lo looked at loving one another, encouraging one another, guarding one another, obeying our leaders now, here's the last one. Let's put it all together. How does all this get put together? So look up at the screen. I meant to have this on an insert and I, I didn't. I forgot to print it off. But uh, I put it up on the screen. So uh, in one corner, if you look up in one corner, the triangle there at one corner uh, has you on one corner, has church leaders at the top and it has the rest of the congregation to the right on the other side. So uh, there's some biblical commands about your relationship with church leaders on one side of the triangle. You're to submit to them, right? And in turn, one day they're going to give an account for you. And then there's some biblical commands about your relationship with the congregation. If you're a Christian, you need to love other Christians, right? 
especially, especially here at Crossway. Right? You're to love other Christians here at Crossway, and you love them in ways that are sometimes messy, that are sometimes difficult, and it's hard to do. And then you're, to, you're, you're to, to see encouraging them as an important part of how you follow Jesus. Right? You're to let them into your life to hold you accountable, and vice versa. Right? And then that's all along the bottom of the triangle. But if you're going to do this, there's some things that need to be true about your relationship with the church. Right. If that's possible, then if, if this is going to work, there's got to be uh, some things true about your relationship with the church. Number one, it's got to be a committed relationship. It has to be a committed relationship. The kind of love, this kind of love and this kind of encouragement can't happen without a real commitment. All right. It's a relationship also with a defined group of people. Like I said before, your leaders need to know who they're giving an account for. Right. You need to know who you're submitting to. So it's a defined group of people. It's a voluntary uh, association, but it's one where you where where you're giving these people permission to do things that you might not necessarily like at the time. You, but you're giving people the, the, the permission to do these things, even though you don't like it, like we saw in the first Corinthians five example of church discipline. So what you call these kind of committed relationships with a defined body of believers, what do you call it? What do you call the kind of committed relationships with a defined body of believers where you give them this kind of permission to speak hard truths into your life? It has it has a term and we'll use the same term that Paul used in his letters to describe Christians who were living like this. They were members of the body of Christ. Church members. That's what you call it. It's membership. And there's not a place in Scripture where you're going to see a command to sign a piece of paper to become a member of a local church. That's not in there. But when you piece all of these one another commands together, what it adds up to is Christians throughout the centuries have been referring to this as membership. That's what it is, membership. And next to your commitment to follow Jesus and be baptized, this is the most basic, basic commitment you're going to make in your spiritual life. Make a commitment to Christ, you get saved. You make a commitment to Christ, you're baptized, right? Then you make a commitment to a local body of believers by willfully entering into church membership. And before we move on from membership, I want us to all understand that this commitment of membership, it has some depth to it, right? If you decide to join this church, if you decide to join Crossway and you show up every week for the Sunday service, but you never invest in any relationship beyond that, then you've not obeyed these commands in Scripture. That's why we need to be committed not just to membership, but meaningful membership. Members of Crossway should be more than spiritual consumers. We should desire to be spiritual providers. Our whole society is geared towards raising up consumers, but that's not the way it is in church. That's not the way it's supposed to be in Christ's church. Whether it's showing up a few minutes early on Sunday morning or, um, or deciding whether or not to talk to, to that awkward member, Noah. You, that, that's, uh, that, that's what church membership is supposed to be about. It's a commitment. Would you disagree with that, Noah? You're a little awkward. You are. <laughs> but let me ask you a question, and I want you to honestly answer this question. What if everybody that was a member of Crossway Baptist Church treated this body of believers the same way you do? What if everybody gave the same level of commitment that you gave? Would this church have already shut its doors? 
or would we be even thriving even more so than we already are now? What is your level of commitment and dedication to the body of believers here at Crossway? What if everybody gave your same level of commitment? That's what we need to think about. We need to think about that and then we need to build into what it is to be a meaningful member of Crossway. And a lot of that's going to involve the, the, uh, ensuring that at least a few people here at Crossway know your life inside and out. And you need to return the favor. What's your ambitions? What's your testimony? What are the things you're afraid of? What's God, where, where is God using you right now? How are you growing? How are you struggling? That kind of transparency in relationships is critical to building the church community that is envisioned in Scripture. I'm not saying you have that relationship with every person in this body, but you, at least a few people need to know your life inside and out. And you need to do the same for them. Because churches are built out of commitment like that that's deep. That's a deep commitment that you have to make. If you're not willing to make it, don't grace these doors. That's what I'm just saying. If you're not willing to make that commitment to this church, especially when we see that it's sick, then just don't come. So why is church membership important? Why is church membership important? Because it enables us to live out the one another commands of scripture. And in doing so, it validates the power of the gospel. But ultimately, it's important because God loves the church. It's important because God loves the church. That's biblical church membership. Now let's let's look at the second part of the message, and that's partnership or unity. Partnership. And I'll run through this quickly because I talked a little bit about unity in the membership section, but there's some things that I want to highlight. Real Christian unity that Paul talks about in Ephesians can be defined as an action, right? It's a pur- it's an action, it's a purpose, it's a source, and it's a context. All right, the action is love. The action is love. And in particular, it's love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that crosses boundaries. It's a love that crosses boundaries. Look at Jesus's words. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors are doing that. Next, the purpose. The purpose is the glory. The action is love, but the purpose is the glory of God in the defense of the gospel. Unity that exists for any other purpose may be valuable, but it's not the Christian unity that we're trying to understand this morning. All right. The third is the source. The source is the love of Christ. We love because he first loved us. Love and it's love that's supernatural. That can only be explained by the power of God that's in work in us. If our partnership and our unity is driven by a love that the world can explain away, then how is that going to display display the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? It's not. It won't. But unity that glorifies God and defends the gospel is unity that is powered by our understanding of how forgiven we are in Christ. Does that make sense? Y'all remember what Jesus said in Luke 7? He says, he who has been forgiven little loves little. And he who has been forgiven much loves much. So if in any part our bonds and our lives with each other here at Crossway becomes just a list of to do's, a list of do's and don'ts, things that you know you should do and probably can do if you just grit your teeth and try, then either you or I are headed in the wrong direction. That's not what this is about. The unity that we should be striving for is a unity that's supernatural. It's a unity that has a, 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 a deep source of understanding of how forgiven we are 
in Christ. And not only does Christian unity have uh, have its goal as the gospel, but at its core, it's to be powered by that gospel. Right. So not only is our goal the gospel, but we have to be powered by that same gospel. Any anything less is merely the work of weak, finite humans. And the last part is is a context. Right. The context. The context is this. It's a love. While it's not limited to the local church, it works itself out essentially in the context of the local church. So this love that we're talking about is not limited to the local church, but that's how it works itself out essentially is within the confines of the local church. That's Christian unity. God's plan to reveal the wisdom of the gospel to all people. What's at stake? Do do, do we know what's at stake here? See, if we're not aiming for the right kind of unity in our church, then we actually compromise God's purposes for the church. But, but exactly what are the stakes? If our unity is based on, the natural, on natural bonds rather than the supernatural gospel, what are we giving up? Because there are things that are given up. There are things that we compromise. Well, let's start with, uh, let's start with reading. Flip to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. If our unity is based on natural bonds rather than the supernatural gospel, what are we giving up? Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So at the risk of of, of oversimplifying this, there are two main thrusts of the Great Commission. We are to share the gospel with all nations, including our own, baptizing those who believe, in other words, evangelism, and we are to teach each new generation of converts everything that Jesus has commanded, in other words, discipleship. So it's evangelism and discipleship. When we build Local church unity that's not supernatural, we we compromise both elements of the Great Commission. We compromise our evangelism and we compromise discipleship. Right. And so let's quickly. Here's how. First one, we compromise evangelism. We compromise evangelism. In John 13, Jesus describes our power in evangelism. He says, "By, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And not and not just any love. Is going to cut it. But the previous verse, he said, uh, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So that's the, the that's love with the depth of the cross right there. It's love with broadness to reach from heaven to earth. And that's it's love that will mark believers in the world's eyes as followers of Jesus. And it's 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 it's, it's costly. It's God exalting. It's supernatural love. And it's the same love that Jesus shows us. We love because he first loved us, right? So what's the cost of community in the local church if it's not supernatural? What, if it's not an evidently supernatural love, what, what does it cost? What is it costing in the local church? Well, John thirteen thirty five says we suppress what God intends as gospel confirmation. Evangelism without Christian unity and partnership is like it's like pushing water uphill. 
Let me say that again. Evangelism without Christian unity and without partnership is like pushing water uphill. Because we serve a gracious God, he's still pleased to save souls, but without Christian unity and partnership in our community, evangelism will never be as it should. And the second thing we compromise when we build unity that's not supernatural is we compromise discipleship. Ephesians 4.14 says, Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every kind of every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceptful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will in all things grow into him who is the head that is Christ. So that's our goal for church, right? That's our goal for Crossway, isn't it? It should be standing firm in our obedience to Christ. That should be our goal. The, the second piece of the Great Commission, discipleship. And, and, and when, we, when we repeatedly get hit, and we are, we, we will always all repeatedly get hit by false doctrine and, and human scheming. And, and we hold firm to the message of the gospel. And, I, and I'll say something. I'll stop here and say something that's not even in my notes. But, but giving you an example of that, yesterday I wasn't there, but Tanner at my grandmother's house, at his grandmother's house, at my mom's house, a Jehovah's Witness comes by. And Tanner argues with her, which I haven't even told him this yet, but don't argue with him. All right, don't argue with him. But the fact of the matter is, Jehovah's Witnesses are heretical, right? We know that they, 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 they espouse a false doctrine. But his arguing with them shows that he stood firm in the truth of the gospel. And he's not getting thrown to and fro by false teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I'm proud of you for that. Stand firm in the gospel. But that's, that's what you've got. That's what this verse says. When, if we don't compromise discipleship, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and blown there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their, dece- and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth and love, we will in all things grow into him who is the head, that is Christ. Stand firm in the gospel. And when we do that, what you see is maturity. You see maturing, spiritual maturity when you see that happening. We grow up into Christ and you see unity in this as well because we do this together. Right now, where does all this come from? Look back at verse seven. In Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So the starting point is Christ and his, and, and, and his grace is a gift to the church. But how, we, how, how do we get from verse 7 to the result in verse 14? Well, verse 11, right in the middle. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So it starts with leaders. Jesus gave his church ministers of the word Ministers of his gospel. He gave to the church ministers of the word, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But 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 are those church leaders the last ones responsible for preserving the gospel? Are the church leaders that God gave the church, are those the last ones responsible for, for preserving the gospel? No. Their job, verse 12 says, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what happens when God's people are equipped for works of the ministry? Look at the end of verse 12. The body is built up. The body is built up. In verse 13, it reaches unity. 
and maturity. And then that's what leads us to verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and blown there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So if you are not being discipled, if you are not being taught, if you're not growing in Christ, if that wasn't happening in his life, then he would have believed every word that come out of that Jehovah's Witnesses mouth and he would believed it to be true. But because he knows it's not true, because he knows he's been discipled and he stands firm in the gospel and knows the foundations of his Christianity, then he knew it was false teaching coming out of their mouth. And he knew that those the Jehovah's Witnesses are people that are headed for hell. Right. It starts with growth. It starts with discipleship. Jesus gives us teachers. Teachers prepare God's people. God and God's people serve each other which results in unity and maturity. And it's ultimately that unity and maturity that allows us to persevere in our discipleship. And so to wrap this up, we're not called to live the Christian life as isolated individuals, but rather as members of the body of Christ, meaning that as member, meaning as members of a local church. And that's not just some arbitrary requirement either. When we commit our lives to one another in the church, then we're given the encouragement and the accountability that we need. And God's glorified by people from utterly different backgrounds, uniting solely for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, then church membership is both for our good and God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for your perfect plan. You knew you thought all things out. You knew everything uh, 2000 years ago or even beyond before the foundation of the world. Six thousand years ago, you knew how this would all work itself out. But you laid a plan, a perfect plan out for us. And Lord, you sent Jesus to die for us. But also not that not only to die for us, but he also planted before he died. He planted his bride in this world. And so, Lord, I pray that we would that as we go through this revitalization process, that we understand the importance of being an official member, a meaningful member of a local body. So if there's anybody here amongst us that has not given their commitment to Crossway in membership, Lord, I pray that they do that. And then I pray that they would that they would unite and, 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 and work toward a unity, a biblical unity among the brotherhood of us here among the, the, the membership here at Crossway. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So what's the, what's the very first thing that the Bible teaches us? Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything starts from that point. Everything starts from that point. And so if you get that point wrong, then everything else that follows doesn't mean anything. Right. Everything that follows that's wrong if you get that point wrong. And so because God created everything, including us, that he has the right to tell us how to live. Amen. And you've got to understand that in order to understand the good news and the truth of Jesus, you have to understand that point. When God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, he intended for them to live obeying him and living in fellowship with him. When they disobeyed God and they ate one of the fruit of the tree that he had told them specifically not to eat, that fellowship with God was broken. They rebelled against God. They denied his authority over their lives. And look, it's not just Adam and Eve who are guilty of that sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous. No, not one. But here's what we do. We, we, we tend to think of our sin as simple. 
right? Especially as, as, as people who are going to church. We, we think of our sin as simple. and we, we Almost as simple as a seatbelt ticket. And then we wonder why God gets so upset and has all that wrath that he pours out. You've got to understand that, that sin is a whole lot more than simple. Because any sin, even so much as small in our minds, we believe a lie to be simple. Even something that we would consider to be that small is, is the complete and total rejection of God himself. Because it's sin. He calls it sin. We might not look at it as rejection of God, but it is. And once you understand sin in that light, you'll understand, you'll start to understand why the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, which is a forceful separating of ourselves, our rebellious selves from the presence of God forever. The Bible teaches that the final destiny for unbelieving sinners is eternal judgment in the place called hell. Scripture says it's appointed for man to die once and then after that comes what? Judgment. That's right. It's Hebrews 9, 7. So every one of us will be held accountable to God. Every single one of us. But even though we rebelled against God, even though we shake our fist at him, even though we curse him, he still made a way for man to stand right before him. When Jesus started his public ministry, do you all know the first words of Jesus' public ministry? Hmm? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, hundreds of years before that, God promised that he would come as a king to rescue his people from their sin. And here, right here in Jesus' first words in his public ministry, he says the kingdom of God is here. It's now. Here it is. Repent and believe the gospel. So every eventually those that were following Jesus started to realize that his purpose was to bring sinful people into the kingdom. Jesus came to die in their place. He came to take the punishment that they deserve for their rebellion against God. And so Jesus, as, 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 as he died on the cross, what happened was the full weight of our sin fell on his shoulders when he died. He died for you. He died for me. And to take our punishment, he, he took our punishment and then he gave us his clean and his perfect record, which is not it was not blemished. Not one time. He never he never told that small lie. Right. He never got angry and upset. Well, he did get angry, but it was a it was a righteous anger. Right. He was upset that his father's house was uh, was being used for uh, for something other than the purposes that it was intended to be used for. So it was a righteous anger, but he never won once ever did he sin. He had a clean and perfect record. And three days after he was crucified, he was put in the tomb. He rose from the dead and his ra raising from the grave was God's way of saying that what Jesus claimed about who he was and what he came to do is absolutely true. And now God expects us. What does he expect us to do with that information? That's right. He expects us. Well, he commands us to respond with repentance and faith first. He expands or expects and commands us. Once we hear the gospel, we respond. There's always a response to the gospel. It's either rejection or it's repentance. But there is always a response to the gospel. And so he expects us to repent of our sin, which means what? Turning away from our rebellion against God. Repentance doesn't mean that uh, there will, it's going to bring an immediate end to our sinning, but it does mean that we'll never live at peace with our sin again. Well, it doesn't mean we'll immediately stop sinning, but we'll, we'll immediately be at odds with sin because he's at odds with sin. And not only that, but we also turn to God in faith. We repent by turning from sin, but when we turn from sin, we turn to God. 
And faith is reliance. It's reliance. Scripture says God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So if God's ever going to count us as right before him, he'll have to do it on the basis of somebody else's record. Somebody who's qualified to stand is our substitute. And that's what, hap- that's what happens when a person is saved by Jesus. That's what faith means, to rely on Jesus, to trust in him alone, to stand in our place. And so what's your response to it? What's your response? Will you respond in repentance and faith or will you walk out those doors rejecting the gospel? I pray God has opened somebody's ears here today. And we're going to have this time of invitation. If you'll all go ahead and stand. What page? 300. Page 300. So I'm asking you to respond as we get ready to sing. Let us